Welcome to Love in the Time of Kasmosos, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Kasmosos blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. For our paleoartist interview later in this episode, Niels and I will be in conversation with pterosaur researcher and paleopines consultant Natalia Jagielska. Before that, for our vintage paleoart discussion, we'll be talking about the seminal 1985 edition of the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs by David Norman, featuring the illustrations of the Grand Seigneur of Paleoart, John Civic. But before that, news from the paleo world. Mark, perhaps you'd like to begin. Sure. Well, the big discussion in media this month has been all about Stegosaurus cloaca, which in particular, the um, same specimen which yielded so many, so much information about its coloration and scalation that allowed Bob Nichols to produce that fantastic model, which we all got to see at TetsuCon a few years ago. Shout out to TetsuCon. Everyone loves TetsuCon, TetsuCon, which we talked about last time. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's another first ever reconstruction of dinosaurs' um, reproductive organs, um, obviously with some caveats. It's only one individual uh, of one species and of some parts of it just weren't preserved so it's possible to say whether or not it had any kind of sort of penis type thing going on down there but um it's nevertheless interesting and of course it was because it's so hilarious it's about dinosaur butts and things it went all went all over the place i even um caught it on six music i, remember, I think it might have been sean keevening talking about it on six music um, he had a real hard time pronouncing Cetacosaurus, though. It made it to Stephen Colbert as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I saw that only this morning on uh, um, when um, Bob Nichols posted about it. But uh, so. yeah, worth mentioning the papers um, in Carbonology, uh, and it's from Jakob Winter. Um, sorry, I pronounced that incorrectly. You probably have <laughs> Robert Nichols and Diane Kelly. Winter, he's the same guy who did the um, who did the uh, coloration paper, isn't he? Yes, yeah. So it's basically it's um, the crew reunited, <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's interesting in that it was found to not be just a simple opening, and neither is it naked as it is in birds. It is there is some scalation and some uh, yeah, some some lips, some lobes. Um, <laughs> so and there's an uh, initial described uh, behind. Yeah, described rather like a, a parted curtain, I believe. It's interesting in terms of dinosaurs' relationship with crocodilians and with their direct descendants that are still alive today, being birds, um, as to what, you know, what, what parts of their anatomy are more like crocodilians, what are more like birds, where they, it sort of fills in a bit more on the, um, yeah, on the tree. Uh, I know a lot of the stuff's well established anyway, but, and also it's just interesting, it, it provides more, um, more information for paleo artists to use. So you don't have to give your dinosaurs a boring um, butt crack anymore. They could have uh, all sorts of interesting <laughs> cloakers going on. Well, uh, I, I, we will be uh, we will be looking at paleo art very sternly now, making sure they got the cloakers right. Oh, heaven forfend. Yeah, what, what are we to make of this? Certainly, it, it opens up a few possibilities as to what paleo artists can do with uh, with dinosaurs' rear ends if they if they really want to. Um, and also some interesting ideas about behavior. So, you know, the implication that there were glands there that um, could have aided in signaling, uh, as so many modern animals do. Um, I mean, even mammals. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, Bob Nichols made uh, an accompanying illustration of Cetacosaurus doing just that. 
Yeah, which obviously heavily resembles his model. So I sort of think, oh, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? As, as it would, naturally. Of course it does. Yes, yeah, obviously, of course. It makes sense. That's what Sitakosaurus looks like. <laughs> it does go to show how rare these things are, because in the case of Sitakosaurus, um, we got tons of them, right? We've got hundreds of Sitakosaurus specimens, and only this one preserves that particular part of its anatomy. Yes. So that just goes to show how incredibly rare it is for, for that sort of thing to preserve. Yes, absolutely. So it's the first time ever that it's just been identified. Um, so it's, it's very significant. And of course, yeah, okay, it's kind of funny. So you can make lots of jokes about it, but it is very, very significant in terms of their biology and behavior. So yep. yeah, it's a remarkable find. Yeah. Sitakosaurus does appear in paleopines. So uh, Natalia, if you're listening to this, you've got your work cut out for you. <laughs> uh, anywho, Crystal Palace, the Crystal Palace Dinosaur Park. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, a couple of months ago, they started a Kickstarter campaign to fund a little bridge that would uh, connect the mainland park with the island that the uh, dinosaurs are on. The dinosaurs, of course, uh, made during Victorian times by Mr. Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. Um, absolutely beautiful, absolutely marvelous. I think uh, all three of us have seen them uh, yes. by now. Yep. Of course... Uh, Earlier last year, uh, unfortunately, uh, the uh, Megalosaurus, the biggest one, got uh, damaged. But uh, never mind all that. Uh, there is a bridge now. So the uh, crowdfunding campaign was successful. Uh, I myself uh, have added a little bit of money. So I can now say that I have personally made the city of London a little bit bridgier because there is now a beautiful bridge connecting the dinosaur island to the mainland. It uh, Looks really nice. It was installed on the 13th of January, 2021. And of course, when I donated to the uh, Kickstarter campaign, I imagined the whole thing uh, happening in slightly different circumstances. I was imagining sort of a, an opening ceremony that we would all go to and uh, we'd have a good time and that didn't play out. Uh, but uh, no, that uh, hopefully the uh, bridge will see uh, good use. And if I ever make it to London next time, God knows when that might be. We'll uh, go and have yes, a look. Yes, should look forward to that yeah. very much. Yeah. From one historic paleontology-related monument to another, uh, the the other news is that the statue of Mary Anning has now been the uh, campaign for that has been finally funded. Thirteen-year-old um, Evie Swire, after discovering that no statue of Mary Anning existed until now. Uh, set out to rectify this, frankly, calamitous oversight. And together with her mother, Anya Pearson, launched the campaign two years ago under the slogan of Marianning Rocks, which, by the way, is also their social media handle. Um, the campaign has since gained the support of uh, Professor Alice Roberts, the novelist Tracy Chevalier, who herself has written a historical novel about Marianning, and none other than Sir David Attenborough himself. Now, at the time of this recording, the campaign has raised uh, just £784 shy of £80,000, um, which is enough to commission the statue. Um, Paleoartist um, Natalia Jagelska, again, has also contributed uh, to this funding by auctioning off some of her originals. And uh, 
the sculptor Denise Dutton uh, has been commissioned and she has already produced a design which uh, uh, you can see via um, Marianne Rocks's uh, social media profiles along with every other detail about uh, about the campaign. Um, so although uh, it's been successfully funded so far uh, to commission this, this sculpture, the the campaign still needs at least 20,000 more to go uh, for the final completion. So the work isn't over. So if we can spread the word and get the funding continuing, then obviously so much the better. All right. Excellent. I'll, I'll donate as long as I include a reference to her uh, nanny in the inscription on the statue being struck by lightning and um, it giving and the same lightning giving Mary her miraculous science powers. Ah, yes. Um, as was detailed in, in Dinosaurs magazine. <laughs> um, yes. What was it, issue, issue 10 <laughs> um, or so? So, yeah. So we, we need a reference that after being struck by lightning uh, as a baby, Mary Anning went on to be a scientific genius. Um, unfortunately, her nanny died. Uh, something like that. Yes, that's, that's a superhero origin, if ever there was one. Uh, indeed, though, Absolutely. whatever powers she may have gained from the lightning, she uh, uh, might have been cursed uh, at the same time, because um, as uh, has historically been the case, she, um, as we all know, wasn't uh, didn't receive the recognition that she should have done during her lifetime. But uh, that's probably a discussion for another time. Shall we move on to the encyclopedia? Yes. Yeah. The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs by Dr. David Norman, uh, also known as the Normanpedia, and illustrated, of course, by the great John Sibick. Yes. <laughs> and it has been copied over, well, the, the work in it, rather, the artwork has been copied over and over and over. But beyond that, it's just... It was just you. Well, the artwork itself, the original artwork, was ubiquitous in the 1990s. I mean, it was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's being criticised for being very uh, kind of retro for its time, which it is a bit. Um, certainly, Greg Paul wouldn't have approved of, of the reconstructions <laughs> in here because they are they are very mid 80s, uh, but also rather beautiful because obviously John Civic's. Um, <laughs> Quite an accomplished yeah, artist, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, I bought a copy of this book and uh, I found that I probably needn't have bought it because I know every illustration in here. Yeah. I mean, his reconstructions have obviously changed radically <laughs> since then, um, but they, they, they did change quite a bit even in the few years afterwards, so in the decade or so afterwards. Yes, yes, of course. Um, if you compare what's in here with his work for the Natural History Museum that appeared in the early 90s. So it was put in their gallery and in the official book and everything. It was all there commissioned by them. It's pretty radically different. Um, yeah. I mean, the dinosaurs take on a much more, uh, let's say, renaissance appearance. Because <laughs> uh, everything in here, I mean, what really strikes me looking through this again, is that they kind of have quite shapeless limbs um especially the larger animals will tend to have tree trunk legs um, trunk, a, a trunk like limbs yeah yeah i mean the bigger the animal the more tree trunk like the limbs are um which is i suppose it's fair enough with sauropods to an extent but even things like the tyrannosaurs and the um allosaurus have these really chunky but quite formless limbs um without they haven't got any big like, like obvious musculature on them um which 
you would get nowadays and and well people like greg paul would have been in at the time and like mark hallett for example uh these kind of you know renaissance type artists would have put in even back then um yeah. and yeah it's and also the skin textures um are peculiar <laughs> in this and of course they were copied over and over and over so we ended up through the 80s and 90s with all these um civic copy um dinosaurs with this weird skin yeah. which is i've always described as um michelin man so like the uh, <laughs> the tire mascot it's got <laughs> well fair enough just lots right. and lots of concentric rings a little, a little ungenerous but but i grant you <laughs> okay a little yeah well I, I will say that um john civic does have a real real talent for making his dinosaurs and you know any anything he anything he draws really look very tangible right yes because exactly. say whatever you want about the skin texture but it does very much look like you could just reach in and touch, touch it, it and you can imagine how it feels exactly absolutely i mean that's why you kind of you kind of have to step back and then think about the skin texture because as you say it does look very it looks very very convincing and that's obviously why so many people tried to copy this style extremely convincing it looks it's kind of odd actually because um if you think about it dinosaurs are mostly known and still are for having lots and lots of very small scales on their bodies with the occasional variety like um triceratops having as we now know obviously not at the time then having bigger scales in different places and um the variety of scales seen on that cetacosaurus we were talking about earlier and uh carnotaurus but mostly they're quite small of pebbly scales but here they they kind of yeah, it's a bit strange. As I said, these kind of concentric rings on the body and these very large, or well, very large, flat, square kind of scales, which all look a bit strange. Yes. Um, Can you name uh, an example? Well, the Tyrannosaurus I'm looking at now on page 69, which is just a bit odd anyway, but, but that, well, particularly the Hadrosaurs. Hadrosaurs. Um, yeah, I was about to bring those up. Yes, the Montosaurus in particular. I mean, it, it's hard to tell what, what the integument is supposed to be, whether they're actually uh, horny sheaths, osteoderms, or, or just skin, or, you know. Um, yeah, but, but the, the large patches of, you know, whatever we might want to call them, uh, do do strike us as a little strange. Yeah, they look, and it's particularly because um, hadrosaur skin was even at the time quite well known to be these small pebbly scales. Mm. Um, maybe with, again with like uh, sometimes a, a crest of sort of keratinous things <laughs> going down the back, but mostly these pebbly scales. So it's a bit odd that you have this yeah. um, leathery skin going on, which was it's just a bit of a trope at the time, and one that persisted obviously for quite a while through. I mean. Civic is by no means the only artist who did this because you had like Gershie doing it as well. And Gershie stuff looks even more ridiculously photo real <laughs> than, than anyone's. The thing is, th these are quite retro. They are quite tail dragging. And, you know, you've got lots of vintage paleo art tropes in here, like the volcanoes and the, you've got dragging tails all over the place. I mean, particularly the sauropods in here, apart from Apistocelicalia. Yeah, the sauropods are really bad with that. Yeah, they're all very heavy looking tree trunk legs. I mean, okay, they were heavy, <laughs> but you know what I mean? They're, they're not, they, they don't look as, um, they, they look a, a, a bit retro. Like the apatosaurs, although they have the right sorts of heads, they look like these big kind of, and they're standing on land, which is a good start, but they look kind of big bloated um, brontosaur type things with dragging tails. I do have to say on the subject of the tangibility, in, in spite of uh, the, well, the bloatedness or whatever you might describe them as, 
uh, the, that their, their solidity and, and weight actually is very much uh, to, to civics merit, I think. Um, even if, you know, the legs might look too columnar and uh, too trunk-like and, and, and there aren't, as you say, uh, not so much defining musculature or, or um, uh, underlying bone structure. Nevertheless, I think the what we were talking about earlier about their tangibility. I think this this very much lends itself to that. They do look, for all their oddness, alive. Yeah, they do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. They do, and that's something that he um, kept as his reconstructions improved into the nineties, and that's why. I particularly love that stuff that he did for the NHM in the early 90s because he kept that tangibility and solidity that he has in this book and in When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, which is about the same time. Um, but he improved the nature of the reconstructions, made them um, made the muscles more defined, the, the animals more convincingly based on their actual like skeletons. <laughs> so um, they, they, he combined the best elements of the Renaissance and the kind of Paulian movement with his original um, tangibility and solidity. So you have things like that Allosaurus launching at the Diplodocus, which they was commissioned for the NHM. And that Allosaurus looks fairly chunky, as it should, but also it has the well-defined muscles um, and it doesn't and it has it doesn't look well it has sensible sort of skin <laughs> and it doesn't look bloated and slow. It looks active and fast and it, and it obviously charging in there foot well off the ground. Um, the Allosaurus in here, in, uh, in the Normanpedia, is a huge contrast to that. Um, and it's also entertaining to spot copies of this Allosaurus because it's yes. so obvious, it's so idiosyncratic. It's got that, um, with the sort of horn rendered as a kind of mild lump in front of its eye, a bit like a kind of, yeah. And uh, In its defense, in its defense of this Allosaurus, the counter shading is phenomenal. I love the color scheme. It's, on it's this. beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it does. I mean, one thing that strikes me in this book actually is um, a lot of the color schemes in here seem kind of because Civic did a thing later on of having sort of brightly colored tops to his dinosaurs and then gray underneath. It doesn't seem to be happening in here. Um, and there are some quite nice color schemes going on. Um, I wonder if this is the origin of Brachiosaurus being green for a while, by the way, because uh, and uh, Protoceratops being blue as well. It's grayish blue here. Yeah, I mean, he didn't originate all these color schemes. Um, I think Saltosaurus looks very much like Mark Hallett's, but um, a lot of them were just copied over and over after this. Um, and there are some, there are some rather nice ones. Um, not least by Dinosaurs Magazine. Not least by all the artists working in Dinosaurs Magazine. Yeah, bless them. Um, <laughs> I mean. What you're saying about the counter shading, so looking at the hadrosaurs on page 122, 123, um, again, there's a lot of counter shading there. And I actually really like the um, Parasaurolophus on there, well, I mean, the color scheme at least. Um, it was a bit of a, again, it is, it's chunky um, and it feels very solid and very weighty, which is great. And it's probably one of the least um, overly flabby ones in there, actually. <laughs> um, it does have those weird, like, small arms which is very sort of 70s 80s it doesn't look like it can really walk on its forelimbs um but it, yeah great yeah. great counter shading um with the dark green and the lighter green underneath and that um Sorolophus on the opposite page is that is very interesting with those yellow blotchy spotty bits yeah so it's very nice yeah so you got you got to say that at least the dinosaurs in here aren't all just boring like green gray brown things there's lots of interesting colors going on i would suggest that th this kind of um coloration of civics is um 
pretty much a trademark of his work, actually. Even uh, the animals with the more subdued coloring has interesting patterning, um, something that makes them actually quite appealing in spite of the drabness. Um, I think this seems to be you know, a, a constant current throughout his work and one which I uh, like very much actually. yeah um i love the lesothosaurus on page 98 it's um next to a volcano by the way <laughs> in front of one um but yeah it's got uh so so many other lesothosaurus around that time it is green for some reason they're all green but this one it is green um on the top but then it has these interesting yellow stripy spotty bits and like a gray black uh, line mid running down its um sort of the the middle um so again the counter shading going on with the uh dark green top and then the sort of tan underneath broken up with this yellow stripy yellow and black stripy spotted pattern i'm thinking civic probably spends a lot of time studying uh extant uh reptiles because you can you can imagine this color scheme on a lizard mm, yes oh yeah definitely there's, there's nothing wrong with that of course um i mean if anything i'm, I'm surprised that more sort of pre-Renaissance artists didn't look at lizards and think, well, lizards are going to be quite colourful and interesting. Let's apply them to dinosaurs. I mean, there is still a tendency in here to make sauropods fairly drab, um, which you'll see. I mean, I think the worst offender is the Diplodocus, which is grey. <laughs> it's like, it's grey. <laughs> I mean, then, then again, and I mentioned the, the Hallett kind of copying um, Saltosaurus on page 93, um, but Epistocelia cordia, caudia, caudia? appears on that page as well um obviously with a rather vague head because its head is unknown so but it has a nice it has a nice um color scheme it's got these yellow stripy things going on um you, you, again breaking up this blue and counter shading with the green on the bottom um i really like that and even the um volcanodon on the left hand side which is a proper old school rather tubby looking tail dragging sauropod but nice perspective and i i actually quite like the the shading and everything on it it looks very it looks very massive and very yeah, imposing this is a, i think this is a particularly interesting one because the volcanodon this very illustration is probably the reason people have heard of volcanodon at all yes. yeah oh yeah <laughs> i'll say that because like hey we have a way to illustrate it um this is this is another mm, one of those yeah. images that that were popping up everywhere and nobody else ever mm. illustrated Volcanodon again. <laughs> this is it. This is the one. Basically, uh, or, or at least it was treated that way. So it just reproduced over and over and over. Um, I did want to talk about, I already mentioned the Tyrannosaurs a bit. I didn't want to talk about them because obviously I'm really into Tyrannosaurs because I'm just sad like that. Um, and also... Ah, so boring. Bit... <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll start talk... I'll mention Jurassic Park again in a minute. Um, but they're also a bit odd. Um, well... One in particular, the T-Rex is a bit odd. So it has this um, rather unusual... I mean, the implication isn't that it stood upright in the way that it's depicted no. all the time, clearly. It's meant to be adopting some kind of rearing posture, but it does just look a bit strange. Um, and the head, I mean, even as a kid, um, I thought the head looked a bit odd. And you can, and actually, you can directly contrast it with... Because um, one thing that's great about this book, by the way, uh, is that... When, once you've got past the life reconstructions, then loads and loads of skeletal diagrams and um, like skull drawings from different angles and drawings of vertebrae and the pelvic bones and you know all kinds of things um, are included. Yeah, that stuff's great. Yeah, which is great. And also photos of specimens in museums or mounts in museums, uh, which is all really good stuff. So with the tyrannosaurs, you can um, turn over the page and then right there, you've got a, well, a pretty good skeletal of... Um, T-Rex with Gastralia and everything. 
um, and the head does not look very much like the one on the uh, on the Civic um, reconstruction, which is a bit, yeah, it's always struck me as being a bit strange. It, it looks very long and low. Um, it's not it's by no means the worst T-Rex we've ever seen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, can, we have to talk about the dromaeosaurs on page 56, 57 of this edition. Um, oh, heavens. Because they're amazing. I mean, this... This book, because these illustrations were everywhere, a lot of my impressions from about certain dinosaurs as a kid were gleaned from this book. So I always thought the Camarasaurus was like a cute baby sauropod, just because it's pictured next to Giraffe Titan in this book, which is absolutely massive. Um, <laughs> and I always thought the Dinolycus was really freaking huge yeah. because of it, the way it's portrayed here. But of course, that's not not full of the illustrator. It's just because it's perspective. I mean, we're like a Dromaeosaurus level, and Dromaeosaurus is considerably smaller than Dinolycus. Well, quite a bit smaller. It's um, for Velociraptor size. But yeah, generally, that Dinonychus is one odd looking beast. It's the wrinkliness of the neck that gets to me. It's, it's like a turkey neck. Yeah, although, mm, is that sort of a bad thing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't mind that so much. Um, I think it's, it's actually quite terrifying and not necessarily for the right reason. Um, Go on. It's unsettling and not in the way that you might say associate with um, modern birds who uh, who can be imposing and frightening in in a perfectly natural way. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're saying there is it looks because I think that's because of how tangible these illustrations or these these reconstructions are, um, because you feel like you could reach in and touch them. They feel so solid. That's part of what makes it so uncanny, because it looks like it could really be there, but at the same time, it just looks wrong in various ways i mean the head yeah. yeah the head is obviously um i think it's the eye actually not so not so much the skull as a whole but the position of the eye is just off like it's really high um yeah. like it's far too high in the orbit by the look of it and it seems to be a bit far forward relative to the teeth um i mean obviously the skull is it was mid 80s so the skull is more of a stout um allosaurish restoration than what we would consider you know proper today a bit more of a longer dromaeosaurus now um so that's that's fair yeah, enough i think i think all the dromaeosaurs here could very well fit into paradise park <laughs> wow oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh that brought back some memories dromaeosaurus is slightly strange but mostly because it has a skull face um and it's doing that thing with its with its arms just raising them up going Rah! It's going to get <laughs> My personal favorite illustration in this book is probably uh, one of the very last ones, and those are the ankylosaurs, um, especially the uh, Euplocephalus, which uh, looks incredibly dynamic for the time, especially for where Civic was at at this point. Yeah. And uh, again, this is just one of those images that became so incredibly influential. This is just what to many people, to a generation of people and toy makers as well, <laughs> Euplocephalus looked like, even though Euplocephalus didn't look very much like this, if you are familiar with the fossils, in which case, hi, Victoria. Yeah, the Ankylosaurs, are, I mean, there's, there's only two of them in here, uh, and they, okay, Pinacosaur is eating a fern, but it's not dragging its tail and it's not squatting down, and yeah, Euplocephalus is running along, it's very dynamic. The um, the, the Nodosaurs, a couple of pages before, don't look so dynamic. I mean, there's that Polycanthus, again, copied a million times. No. That's tail dragging and looks a bit dull. But uh, yeah, for some reason, Ankylosaurs are really amazing. Um, my favourite in here, I really love that. Um, I don't know if it's my favourite, but I really love the Styracosaurus on page 134, which is yes. facing towards us. 
um because it's just such an imposing yeah and again so many people copied that because it's such a great imposing view of that animal it's a really iconic image yeah i mean you ought to have the um the idea to draw it from that perspective and get and the the way that it's positioned as well with one leg slightly um out to the side like it's bracing itself like it's um it, it looks very challenging very intimidating even though actually it's just got a mouthful of ferns yes <laughs> yes that's true i love an illustration like that which can convey something about the animal's character without having it do anything overly dramatic and yeah civic's good at that kind of thing as well let's let's, let's give him some credit here <laughs> <laughs> no but seriously uh civic he is probably one of my all-time favorite paleo artists um this book admittedly probably not his best work but very influential uh on me on a whole generation of paleo artists Indeed. and uh, yeah hats off to john civic yeah exactly so now, our paleo artist this episode is herself a qualified scientist as well as an award-winning artist and graphic designer. Natalia Jagielska is a geologist and pterosaur researcher currently on her PhD program at the University of Edinburgh. She has worked in Poland, England, China and Scotland and was very recently a TED ZoomCon speaker as well as consultant on paleopines, more about which later. Uh, her lively, refreshingly stylized artwork is immediately recognizable, and I might also add that I'm a very proud owner of two of her originals. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Hi, Natty and Niels, and congratulations on getting my name right. That's really rare. <laughs> thank you. Thank very you. Much. <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, I really didn't have any chance before this. You just went into it and did it right. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Natalia, let's uh, talk a little bit about your background. What got you into dinosaurs? What was it that grabbed you? Oh, I think it was Jurassic Park 3, especially the scene when one of the characters gets sort of harpooned by raptor claw. I was like four, maybe five when I saw it, and I immediately fall in love with raptors and dromosaurids. Okay. Uh, as any kid would do, because, you know, they look absolutely great. I know Jurassic Park 3 is far from perfect film, but I still have soft spot for its raptors and uh, how well they executed in that film. And that Pilbara's Park in love of Prehistoric Park, which made me skip church, which is sinful in Poland, which is a very Catholic <laughs> country. But Prehistoric Park ran at 12 a.m. That's when the mass was in Poland on Sunday. Uh, and I decided to not go to church like I usually do uh, and just stay in home and watch Prehistoric Park. And that's what started my sinful journey into evolutionary biology. Uh, by age oh. 12, I moved to England, where I uh, just had regular life. Didn't really think of paleontology as a career, because you never know how to take that first step. Up until accidentally working in to uh, a class uh, for undergraduates run by Phil Manning and Roy Bogilius about uh, soft tissue preservation in dinosaurs at the University of Manchester, and I immediately clicked with it and tried to cater my uh, college years to on to getting onto that course. Uh, which is was pure geology uh, with specialization as master, research masters in paleontology later. Sounds wonderful. Okay, so prehistoric park. <laughs> Tempted by Nigel Marvin. <laughs> He's the cause of all of it. <laughs> so your recent research focuses mostly on uh, pterosaurs. Why focus on them in particular? What draws you to them? I mean, when you're searching for PhD, you cannot be really picky. And I was lucky enough to be on the pterosaur research just because previously I was studying uh, Scottish Jurassic sequences for my undergraduate uh, degree uh, master uh, dissertation. 
Uh, and the Terrasar I'm currently studying comes from Jurassic sequences. For your masters, I also studied a small eosinic bird and its phylogeny. Uh, and the new research PhD also focuses on uh, phylogeny. So I, I had ideal mixture of Jurassic uh, sediments from Scotland and phylogenetic analysis to study this new pterosaur, which required knowledge of Jurassic sequences and phylogeny. Right. Uh, actually, before studying pterosaurs, I barely knew anything about them. I, I mean, they looked cool. I adored taper jarrets, thinking about animal that's not uh, uh, that's. Uh, fruit eating that sounded exciting and they had exciting big crests which could be colorful so i was sort of interested in them but not on a professional level that usually went to avians and dromaeosaurids and fluffy dinosaurs that was my interest right uh, but you know they're super competitive when coming to pastry everybody wants to get on a dromaeosaurid just because they make buzz in the social media side of course but, but i grew to love pterosaurs studying them just because they're much more interesting than most of paleo art seems to portray them. Uh, but of people like Mark Witten's interest in uh, pterosaurs, especially as dark kids, uh, boomed. Uh, which is interesting because pterosaurs went through a research hiatus uh, in uh, before 2000, so we didn't know that much about them. Barely anybody looked at them from like 1920s uh, to 21st century. So maybe that's right. why the interest went on the ground for pterosaurs, just because there was not enough info. Now with all the Fauna coming from Brazil and China, pterosaurs are suddenly exploding interest again. And they should. They're really weird creatures. Yeah, sometimes it feels like Mark Witten has just single-handedly kick-started the interest into uh, pterosaurs again. It certainly does feel that way. But I guess it's mostly the researchers, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a combination of both with paleontology. It's amazing field that art and research goes hand in hand. If you have amazing paleo art with your research, People, even if they are not interested in science, will gravitate to it if it catches your imagination. And things like as dark kids, as dark kids mm -hmm. catch everyone's attention because they're weird giraffes that can fly. That's weird. That doesn't look like anything we're living today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But sadly, I'm not researching as dark kids. I'm looking at rampurinkoids, so they're like the small dragon-like relatives <laughs> of all pterosaurs, which are quite obscure just because they're quite old school. They like. Most of them were described in uh, 19th century, but I love them. They're like small dragons. They have a lot of teeth and tail veins and are quite fuzzy. Yes. Unless, you know, <laughs> you're one of the new camp of people who doesn't think pterosaurs were fuzzy, but that's a kind of worm I don't want to offer in this podcast. <laughs> no. No, but as you say, Natalia, even even if they are, uh, the, the rampharynchoids may not be as dark hits and may not be as, you know, big and intimidating and, and extraordinary alien looking but nevertheless what you said about them um having an anatomy that seems to defy belief uh, still very much applies to even uh, the, the smaller pterosaurs in fact across all all pterosaurs i'm sure yeah so uh, so they're no less peculiar and wonderful and, and extraordinary for that yeah i mean pterosaurs are weird because they first volunt animals first vertebrate animals that were learned to fly and they fly like no other flying animal like bats or birds currently just because they're so weirdly adapted and membranous mm. uh, and you know they bring ideas of prehistory, prehistory or how we imagine prehistory those big teeth that stick out of the jaw the long tails with frills uh the lots of sort of reptilian like weird membranes it's everything we associate with old school dinosaurs yes. although it's an outdated look when you look at a fossil of Ramparinkoid, it still brings that idea of, you know, Victorian imaginations just because it looks so primitive and, and archaic. That's right. Well, they are dragons, aren't they? 
Yes, the, the first popular science publications uh, was called Dragons of the Sky to describe pterosaurs, and that's a fitting name. Mm-hmm. Although they sadly don't breathe fire. They're not exciting. Well, well, as far no. as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, um, Natalia, as you probably know, we're great champions of unconventional paleo art here at Casbosaurs, and your style being so distinctive and unmistakably yours. Um, we wondered, uh, how did you arrive at it, if it's possible to answer, and uh, what influences you might have had, if any? Okay, my art adventure started slightly differently to many paleo artists, because I didn't start drawing birds or dinosaurs. My first venture into digital art started in 2012, when I opened an account on the Lion King fan art, uh-huh. which is a weird, obscure site which just has Lion King fan art. Ah. <laughs> but that's how I started moving with my crappy pint and gimp pictures of weird obscure lion king characters uh, but eventually i got tired of dra- drawing lions and wanted to draw some cool dinosaurs uh, and i moved to DeviantArt when i was 13. Uh, i know you shouldn't have account of DeviantArt unless you're 16 but you know when you're stubborn and a kid you open it <laughs> and you give it cheesy name i called mine toxic kitty cat it's still oh, under yeah. that name because, you know, I was 13. And I still don't want to oh. change it for just, you know, keep safe. It started so young. I still blame Nigel Marvin. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, under Toxic Kitty Cat because I drew a lot of, you know, neon lit lions for some reason. You know, 13. <laughs> uh, and uh, that eventually grew into uh, drawing more dinosaurs uh, because it's easier to draw dinosaurs than Lion King style uh, uh, animals. But also, uh, it... They're so uh, vibrant when looking at raptors or any other dinosaurs. Uh, you can give them enormous googly eyes and suddenly people absolutely love them just because they're furry, weird animals. Right. Uh, and I love to uh, show it to people when you sort of mix things we usually associate with uh, carnivory and sticking out teeth and dynamic poses, which I usually in every uh, book that's about dinosaurs or used to be now slowly changing. Uh, when people see them in uh, vibrant, soft colors, uh, and with Disney-like eyes, they suddenly lead a brand new audience is opening to those creatures. Mm-hmm. And I, I uh, discovered the power of actually experimenting styles when volunteering at Manchester Museum, and we had coloring books for kids. And my uh, friend Matthew Dempsey did some realistic reconstructions of animals, and did and I did the chubby for you once. And a lot of girls and smaller kids <laughs> prefer their small chubby animals over their realistic reconstructions just because they can gravitate to them more. Yes. Uh, and you know, there's no wrong or bad way of approaching paleo art. Uh, it's an art. You can do whatever you want with it. And mm-hmm. it's a science as well. So if you approach it with different angles, different audiences will resonate with it. Uh, exactly. So yeah, that's why I went. But I still want to be good at realistic paleo art because when you do publication, nobody wants to have anime cartoon style reconstruction of the animal for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but for science communication... Fair enough. Yeah, that, that's a good way to go. It's uh, great to uh, bring audiences that usually are not don't associate dancers with something like, looking like this. And it's great on communicating things like feathers because they look natural when you sort of uh, simplify the drawing even more so. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of amazing artists which can create astounding work. I'm still fascinated how many people, much, much younger than me, can produce artwork that's absolutely amazing. I'm really looking forward to how Polyart is going to be looking in the next five, ten years oh, yes. when those small artists grow up and actually get into the field and start publishing is going to be a wild, diverse field because Polyart for a very long time was dominated by a very small group of people. Now it's actually spreading and it's being more global and more diverse in 
terms of artists and also art That's styles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just wondering when you started when you started off drawing dinosaurs, um, were you doing feathered dromaeosaurs straight away? Because I think Nati and I belong to a generation when when we were young, um, dromaeosaurs were still very much seen as scaly reptilian animals. That's right. Uh, yeah. did, did that already change when you were young? Yeah, uh, I remember first books with uh, Archaeopteryx still being feathered. Other dinosaurs didn't have feathers, but that Archaeopteryx brought my attention. Of course, Prehistoric Park had also Microraptor. Yeah, Microraptor uh, yeah. And then you have other documentaries with also had feathered dinosaurs in them. Uh, and of course, I preferred drawing fluff over scales. Uh, so uh, what many of my first... No, I think uh, even when I joined DeviantArt, people like Emily Willoughby were already very active and prominent on it. Right, yeah. Uh, so I already had this kind of reference point. Uh, for reference, I was born in 1997. So uh, when I was in my tweens, favorite dancers were already in sort of, especially in uh, documentaries and DeviantArt scene, mainly fluffy. Yes. It's interesting to think that a new generation, as you say, Natalia, is growing up after the feathered revolution. So they they don't really necessarily have that background of, oh, they used to be scaly and they're not anymore. That's right, yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I grew up with Jurassic Park 3 immediately, but like, upon seeing more and more evidence, you just sort of grow for it. And uh, as an artist, just ability to draw feathers adds another val uh, facet of creativity because you can ch have more freedom with plumage, with patterns you can show uh, than scales and be slightly more expressive because feathers are an exp expressive feature of many of the birds. Uh, so out of artists, I can imagine gravity to favorite dinosaurs just because they're quite interesting to illustrate mm. and allow you to illustrate it in much more various ways. Not saying that scales are boring because there's a lot of amazing scale patterns and coloration patterns in uh, most lizards. But, you know, feathers talk, uh, a lot of birds communicate. Yes. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, uh, for my part, even though... Um, as Neil said, we uh, are from a generation accustomed to seeing uh, scaly dinosaurs, scaly dromaeosaurs, and the the paradigm shift, as it were, of regarding them as feathered animals. Um, for me, it wasn't it wasn't such uh, a huge leap that I felt I had to try and get accustomed to. It it felt to me quite natural, actually. If anything, I embraced it wholeheartedly. But but that I'm sure it's probably a lot down to the fact that that I adore birds and and being able to make them more bird-like is uh, to me so much the better. So um, I perhaps didn't have to struggle in quite the same way to accept them the way that maybe uh, a more general public and uh, and and the scaly diehards. For, for want of a better description, uh, might have had to. I mean, you can just look at uh, cassowary on ostrich and it screams dinosaur in its mannerism and its aggression. Precisely. <laughs> I, I struggle comprehending when people look at crocodile and say, that's a dinosaur, and they look at ostrich and it's like, no, like, look at a skeleton. It looks very similar. Look at its... <laughs> I mean, uh, especially large birds, uh, you can just add a slightly long caudal section and suddenly becomes a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, they are dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, also, I think the big part of the renaissance is uh, ability of sharing works on the internet. So for me, uh, yes. things like Linking Fanart or DeviantArt on now Twitter uh, allows people to communicate from all over the world and share feedback, share views and share art and art the paleo memes 
even many people think about polyarchmemes as bad things, perhaps they will adore idea of Im uh, imagination being replicated by other people and just some trends catching on in art. Because, you know, we look at things, we learn from them, and we replicate them even unconsciously. But on Twitter, it's a very thriving, mainly positive culture of fully varied artists that support each other, uh, like Nati and a lot of plethora on people from 3D to cartoons to hyper-realistic to hyper-stylized. Uh, and it's growing because people see they come in, they see the artwork and they want to join. So you see a lot of very young people setting up their social media accounts and slowly trying to gain into that skill, but going their own direction as well. Uh, and yeah, that, that's a biggest shift that could have happened is the uh, internet and communities that support artists. Yes, that's right. So with uh, paleo art branching out and becoming more diverse, uh, getting more diverse styles in there, um, do you think we are going to see more stylized paleo arts accompanying those press releases, those scientific papers that you just mentioned? I can imagine you can already uh, see some sh shifts uh, with uh, one of the uh, like rapids that was recently published already had sort of more stylized look. But of course, those images are going to be on thumbnails of, of press releases. And the thumbnails have to look like uh, prehistoric animals people want to see, uh, just to click them, you know, just to spark that imagination of them being an actual animal and the research being actually valid. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. I think that will stop uh, stylized art being in PR, uh, which is not a bad thing because you know you want to portray your research as uh, valid and natural, uh, and realistic reconstructions fit well uh, that criteria. Uh, but on uh, things like science communication and paleontology books for all the ages, I can imagine stylized art exploding in comics, in kids' books, in illustrated books, uh, just because that's an additional uh, facet of the audience. I can already see some of the kids' books already having very diverse styles going away from just box standard animal standing in a lateral view uh, yes. or just gnarly uh, animal just with random zoom in on the teeth, uh, but uh, going from even naturalistic, uh, really stylized uh, takes. Uh, so yeah, either way is good. I, like art uh, pops up uh, in uh, a lot of facets of uh, communication, being professional science, academic communication, to also things like documentaries uh, and even so social media discourse. So I'm really glad uh, there's a lot of facets to communicate art and communica communicate art uh, with variability. Uh, when I'm going to publish my research on my torso, I'm definitely not going into stylized direction. I'm going to do something more natural, uh, but that doesn't mean I'll do a lot of accompanying stylized art for science communication for kids, schools, and museums. Of course. And then, of course, there's video games. Yes, a lot of video games. All of them go into very natural natural uh, angle, like Saurian or The Isle. But I'm working on something different. You can start on it. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Let's uh, talk about Paleopines. What is Paleopines? What is your role in it? How did you get involved in it? And uh, how can we play it? Okay, Paleopines is not released yet, but you can add it on your stream wishlist. Advertisement. <laughs> so Paleopines is a very scientific game in which people live with dinosaurs that survived because they're very, very friendly. That's the thing, that's the concept. Uh, people and dinosaurs cobbled because they were both very friendly and nice. <laughs> yeah, it's very scientific. Well, I, I've seen some of the, uh, I've seen some of the art. I've seen some of the in-game footage. It mm -hmm. looks adorable. It's beautiful. And it should be. It's like Animal Crossing. So it's your heart. Uh, it's a horticulture, agriculture stimulator. So you're running your own farm and find dinosaurs and trunch them along the way. Uh, and uh, I got invited because of my 
matching art style and, you know, being a scientist. Uh, and my role is to check on every uh, game involvement. So if dancers make pop, I have to make sure pop is accurate by pointing them into uh, uh, summarizing uh, literature, uh, providing picture evidence, uh, and then moving into things like uh, factoids for the social media, uh, but also designs if they're uh, matching the current scientific knowledge. Uh, recently, I was providing some information on uh, dancer vocalization and how little we actually know about it, but going into uh, ideas of Hadrosso's uh, low, uh, low frequency rumbling and uh, Tarasso also having the asymmetric ear and ability of percussive communication using feathers uh, and fitting them into the uh, creative team. Of course, you know, it's a game, so it has to have uh, some involvement and sometimes you require dancers to be quite vocal. So sometimes you have to break science to make good video game design. Uh, yes, of course. I don't understand that, uh, but uh, the team uh, is trying its best to actually keep them accurate. I'm trying to uh, give them the most accurate evidence uh, and reconstruction of animals when they add them to the game. And they look absolutely cute. I absolutely adore them. And I can't wait to see uh, when the game actually gets released. Uh, I'm not a game person, but I'm really looking forward to it because I used to play Jurassic Park Operation Genesis and the Tycoon a lot. <laughs> and that seems to be a similar type of game, but much more softer. Let's go to eating. Let's <laughs> yes. opening up the gates of the park and just seeing them. It's just being eaten. <laughs> I, I seem to recall seeing um, uh, a Parasaurolophus in, in almost all of the uh, the released um, stills. Is this uh, a main character or is it or is it just coincidence that it happens to be uh, what we're seeing now? I know I know very little about the right. story because it's all on the wraps. I'm just on the science uh -huh. team. But I know that Parasolopus is the iconic animal of the game and he's like your starter Pokemon. You start with right. Uh, right. the game and as the game progresses, you search for more varied dancers and they have different uh, variations that are of different rarities. Uh, so if you like Pokemon Go, that might be something into Phylactus finding rare animals in the wild and bring them to your ranch. You might have just sold me on that game. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not a game person, so... <laughs> well, I've played a lot of Pokemon, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I can imagine it being a very relaxing experience, which is something you might need in those trying weird times currently, just to have some nice ranch with very friendly animals and trying to keep them alive and healthy. Yes. Everybody likes yes. that. And, you know, soft, friendly colors. Exactly. Yes, let's go for it. And of course, like I said, it's a game that will invite not only Paleo fans, it will invite a lot of people and a lot of people will interact with it and learn about dinosaurs at the same place, which is the best way of learning. It's, it sounds wonderful. And as you were saying earlier, um, you know, it's, it's, again, another refreshing aspect to have a dinosaur game that is less focused on, you know, the, the survival, precisely <laughs> the, the grittier survival aspects and the, and the, and all the killing and the rampaging and all of the rest of it. And, uh, and more on the, even though the, there is a place for that, even though there is a place for that, but, um, but, you know, if, if we mm -hmm. can have, you know, this other, say a more pastoral, I suppose, um, aspect, um, a calming aspect to a dinosaur game then you know so much the better for it i think yeah especially with things like vertebrate paleontology being very male dominated field Precisely. it's great to see some variety of media that doesn't just cater for usually boys uh, nothing wrong with saurian or the isle those games are amazing Indeed. and this audience and paleontology should be expressed in numerous ways because you know nature is varied and real and there's a lot of killing and brutal uh, but also out of soft points out of idleness out of uh, you know, 
softness. <laughs> the natural world is very varied and there's no good way and single way of looking at it. Yes. And that should be also represented by documentaries and games and media coming into pantology because that will uh, interest people not coming from just one upbringing on one idea of pantology. You know, it's a lot of facets and everybody can interact with it in any way they want. And it's great we have variation of this idea of pantology in different facets now accessible to even big audiences. Mm, I agree. And uh, on following on that note, in which case, um, do you think, um, well, I won't have been the first to whom this has occurred, Natalia, but because your style does lend itself so much to animation, the very fact that you were invited on to consult on Paleopines is because of this. Do you think that this could be something that you might be interested in pursuing yourself someday? Um, other than uh, your role as consultant, maybe perhaps as art director or a concept artist or, um, you know, or just, you know, creating your own animation. Yeah, I absolutely would love to. Uh, problem is like PhD takes a lot of time and with PhD comes a lot of work as a lecturer uh, and a lot of things like podcasts and freelance work. Uh, but I would love to start storyboarding and animating and have it as my side hobby, like currently I have freelance art going on. Yes. Uh, just because I adore cinematic storytelling and I can imagine various narratives. And, you know, I know how influential film is on me because it for me, it built up my childhood in built up my outside. Everything I do was influenced by media in one shape or form. I I love I would love to have the same influential power on other people and uh, introducing them to the uh, to the art and pathology. Uh, but sadly, uh, like things, film industry is super competitive. I was trying to get into it. I did some broadcast. Uh, storyboarding for smaller films uh, and try to just brush on side of it but i'll definitely would love to go into that direction or at least science communication mm. uh, and educational outreach after my phd uh, because i while research is right it's definitely not something i want to do i prefer to be there with people and to be on the front line communicating science uh, rather than just being behind the desk although there's out of science communication for phd it's part of the course uh, but I would love to be slightly closer to the people because all of this other amazing research was usually behind paywalls or behind uh, just structural uh, barriers that prevent other people from accessing it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we love being on the side of destroying those barriers and making it accessible to more yes. people because postgraduate research is a very uh, sm uh, not very diverse uh, place mm -hmm. when you look at it statistically, even pantology. Is less diverse than environmental sciences. It it has problem with diversity. I would love to be on the side, trying to break it. Uh, and the best way of doing that is usually in media because media influences so many people. Yes. It influences the lawmakers. It influences the general public. It's the most powerful tool we can have to actually influence people to be active. As you can see, for better of the worse, that's happening on currently. Everything was influenced by media, uh, and what was portrayed on that media. So it'll be nice to actually have some control and do something positive with this very powerful tool. We are pinning all our hopes upon you, Natalia, and everyone else who follows in your footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's very beautifully put. Indeed. And uh, I think, Natalia, we, we wish you the best of luck in everything. And uh, we fans of your work, as you know. And uh, good luck for the future. <laughs> Thank you. Guys. You both are fantastic artists and science communicators and just keep it up and just grow stronger and larger and don't bring, let the world bring you down. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Natalia, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Good luck.
and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see you soon. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you, Natalia. So before we uh, wrap up for this month, I wanted to uh, extend a word of thanks to our backers on Patreon. Um, we have uh, a number of them, and uh, we're highly thankful to all of you because uh, your contributions do allow us to uh, stay in the air. They allow our blog to stay in the air. And uh, hopefully in the future, they will, uh, you people will help us uh, expand our podcast a little bit, uh, help us get the uh, juicy premium features that will allow us to, uh, for instance, be available on Spotify, which we aren't right now, but hopefully we will be in the future. So uh, thanks a bunch for that. And uh, if you want to back us on Patreon, we uh, do have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. And uh, just as a rejoinder to Niels, um, in thanking our Patreon supporters, uh, I'm sure that my co-hosts will also join me in thanking everyone who has given us feedback so far after the first episode. Um, we've been sincerely moved, actually, almost overwhelmed uh, by how positive you've been. And um, thank yes. you very much for that. And uh, as much as the Patreon supporters are giving us the uh, financial aid, um, your feedback is giving us the moral support. Um, so thank you. All right. Um, Nati and Mark, thank you very much for podcasting with me. It's been a pleasure as always. And uh, we'll be back next month for more. And hopefully you, our loyal listeners, will be back again. So until then, goodbye. 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 Same Casmosaur time, same Casmosaur channel. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Our blog can be found at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon. When dinosaurs ruled the Earth, 